0: Part 1. Paths to Obsession Chapter 1. Among the Dead The body lay face down and partially embedded in the gravel, as if it had fallen into a slab of wet concrete. The head was partly covered in the remnants of a leather bomber's cap, fringed with orangey-yellow hair. Much of the drab, earth-tone clothing had long ago been torn away by the wind, but bits of fabric still clung to the arms and around the waist. The entire back was exposed, the skin so clean and virgin white it looked like a marble statue. The buttocks and thighs had been chewed away by Himalayan ravens, and the holes gave the body the appearance of a plaster mannequin that had been cracked open with a hammer. There were obvious signs of suffering. The arms were outstretched, long thin fingers clawed into the slope. The backs of the hands were the color of leather, in stark contrast to the rest of the skin, which had no color at all. The right foot, Inside, a leather hobnailed boot was bent at an unnatural angle, where the leg had been broken above the boot top. The left leg was crossed over the right as if protecting the injured limb. This small, undeniably human gesture is what struck me most. Whatever had happened to this climber, it seemed he arrived at his final resting place, conscious of his plight. I looked over at my 12-year-old daughter, Lilla, sitting next to me in the lecture hall gripping the armrests of her seat. I put my hand on top of hers. Are you okay? I whispered. She looked up at me with a blank expression and nodded slightly. I hadn't known this slideshow would be R-rated, and I realized this must be the first time she had seen a photograph of an actual dead body. I was familiar with the photo. It had made the rounds on the internet when this long-lost climber, George Mallory, had been discovered high on the north face of Mount Everest, almost 20 years earlier. Standing on the stage between a mannequin wearing a yellow one-piece down suit and an orange tent adorned with a New Hampshire license plate that read 29035, the elevation in feet of Mount Everest, was my friend, Tom Pollard. His gray hair belied a spryness in his manner and movements. His dress, like his speech, was typically peppered with nouveau bohemian flourishes, including the string of Tibetan prayer beads around his neck. But on this night, he wore a navy blue blazer, a tan pair of chinos, and dress shoes. His beard was trim, his hair combed neatly in place, the dome of his head shining under the stage lights. My hippie friend was transformed into something like a college professor on this October evening in 2017, and he carried himself as such, strolling casually from one side of the stage to the other. I had known Tom since the 1990s, having first met him through mutual acquaintances shortly after he moved to North Conway, New Hampshire. We both had young children around the same age, and in a lot of ways, we were living parallel lives, struggling to make a living doing what we loved. He worked as a cameraman and a filmmaker, and I as a professional climber, mountain guide, and journalist. Our wives were also friends who shared a bond that was likely forged from the unique challenges posed by husbands who frequently traded family duties for global adventures, leaving them to raise young children in the sticks of New Hampshire alone. Years later, Tom and I would each end up paying the predictable price for willfully chasing our dreams. Heartbroken and dazed, our scripts converged when both of our divorces were finalized at the same court hearing. As it turned out, Tom was wise to dress up, His talk, titled, Lessons Learned in Pursuit of Everest, had drawn a crowd of nearly 400 people. In 2016, a year earlier, he had summited Mount Everest for the first time at age 54. It was his third attempt. Truth be told, I wasn't interested in Mount Everest at all. I saw the mountain as a place overrun with inexperienced climbers who stacked the odds in their favor by outsourcing the most significant risks to the climbing Sherpas, who carried the weight of everyone's egos on their shoulders, and frequently paid with their lives. The American alpinist Mark Twite summed up the sentiment of many climbers and pundits alike when he wrote, I think posers have polluted mountaineering. They replace skills and courage with cash and equipment. They make the summit, not the style, the yardstick of success. Now I'm embarrassed to call myself a climber because close on the heels of the admission, Some dilettante will ask whether I've read Into Thin Air or done Everest. For me and many other climbers of my generation, the world's highest mountain was not a worthy objective. But it hadn't always been that way. When I first started climbing at age 15, I quickly became fascinated with climbing lore. One of the first books I read was All 14 8000ers which told about Reinhold Messner and Peter Hobbler's groundbreaking oxygenless ascent of Mount Everest in 1978. Medical experts had warned them that it was impossible to climb to 29,000 feet without supplemental oxygen. Even attempting to do so, they said, would cause permanent brain damage. So Messner and Hobbler climbed as fast as they could, then practically ran down the mountain after they reached the summit. When they arrived in base camp, even they were surprised to find themselves perfectly healthy and mentally intact. After I read his book, Messner promptly replaced Evil Knievel as my idol. Who cared about jumping the Snake River Canyon in a rocket car when the roof of the world was waiting for you? The first commercial client on Everest was Dick Bass, a Texas oilman and rancher who co-founded the Snowbird Ski Resort in Utah. In 1985, David Prashears and Ang Purba Sherpa led the 55-year-old Bass to the summit via the South Call Route, making him the oldest person at the time to climb the mountain and also the first to climb the highest peaks on each continent. Now, a popular quest called the Seven Summits. Unwittingly, Bass had opened Pandora's box and by the early 90s, several companies were selling guided Everest descents. Two of the most successful Everest guides were Scott Fisher and Rob Hall both of whom died while guiding clients on the mountain during the tragic 1996 season. The storm that killed them claimed the lives of six other people and was soon after memorialized in John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. While Krakauer decried the growing trend of well-heeled Everest clients who had not earned their mountaineering spurs, his book only brought into the mainstream the idea that you could buy your way to the top of the world. As a preamble to his Everest talk, Tom had taken us on a quick spin around the globe, from the French Alps and Denali to Gasherbrum II, an 8,000-meter peak in Pakistan. The story I loved most was his attempt to sail across the Pacific Ocean, simply to prove it could be done, on a ship that he and a few companions constructed from 2.5 million to reeds they cut from the shores of Lake Titicaca in Peru. Without a motor, the 65-foot sailboat eventually drifted into the doldrums between South America and Easter Island where it bobbed for weeks on the glassy water, making no progress toward its destination. The expedition's official line was that Tom had bailed onto a Chilean Navy vessel after 56 days because of a family emergency. But the emergency, he later told me, was that his wife had threatened to leave him if he didn't get home immediately. I looked again from the corner of my eye at Lilla. She still seemed uncomfortable, but Tom certainly had her full attention. It is almost unthinkable with this plan that I shan't get to the top, Mallory wrote to his wife Ruth before his team reached Mount Everest in 1924. I can't see myself coming down defeated. The question of whether he and his climbing partner Sandy Irvin might actually have reached the summit 29 years before the official first ascent in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay has haunted mountaineers ever since. The last person to see the two men alive was their teammate, Noel O'Dell. Early on the afternoon of June 8, 1924, O'Dell turned his gaze toward the summit, 3,000 feet above his own position, where Mallory and Irvin were attempting to reach the top. A swirling veil of clouds had enveloped the upper reaches of the north face that morning, but as O'Dell looked on, the turning cloud cap began to lift. High on the northeast ridge at what he later approximated to be 28,200 feet, Adele spotted two tiny silhouettes, moving expeditiously toward the summit. My eyes became fixed on one tiny black spot silhouetted on a small snow crest. He would write on June 13th or 14th in an official dispatch. The first then approached the Great Rock step, and shortly emerged on top. The second did likewise. Then the whole fascinating vision vanished, enveloped in cloud once more. The dream of climbing Everest had captivated the British elite for years. At a time when the Himalaya was still terra incognita to Westerners, the idea of scaling the world's highest peak was no less daring than a modern space flight to Mars, with all the pressures and dangers that would come with it. In 1905, Lord Curzon, the Viceroy of India, proposed an expedition to the mountain in a letter to Douglas Freshfield, an accomplished mountaineer and former president of the Alpine Club. It has always seemed to me a reproach that with the second highest mountain in the world for the most part in British territory and with the highest in a neighboring and friendly state, we, the mountaineers and pioneers par excellence of the universe, make no sustained and scientific attempt to climb to the top of either of them, I would be prepared to lend every aid the government can give to a thoroughly well-appointed climbing party comprised of trained experts with Swiss guides. Ought we not be able to do this? It wasn't until after World War I in 1921 that the Alpine Club, in conjunction with the Royal Geographical Society, formed the Mount Everest Committee. The committee correctly reasoned that an assault on the world's highest mountain would require a multi-year effort involving reconnaissance, further surveying, and an army of porters. These logistical considerations became more complicated when the Nepali government, intent on preserving its isolation, replied with a firm no to Lord Curzon's request for a permit to approach the mountain from the south through the Khumbu Valley. Tibet was the only other possibility, but the Secretary of State for India, John Morley, A myopic, dry-as-dust bureaucrat nicknamed Aunt Priscilla was worried about aggravating tensions with the Chinese and Russians. He forbade Britons from traveling in Tibet. Access remained the primary obstacle to Everest until the First World War. In a further affront to the nation's dignity, British exploration was no longer on the leading edge. A series of British expeditions had been beaten in races to the Northwest Passage and to both poles of the Earth. In 1848, while seeking a shortcut to the Pacific Ocean, two British ships, the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, mysteriously vanished in the Canadian Arctic, with 129 men on board. In 1909, the American Robert Perry claimed the North Pole. Two years later, a scrappy, self-funded Norwegian explorer named Roald Amundsen, who had finally solved the enigma of the Northwest Passage in 1906, beat the Brits at their own game once again. When the doomed British Antarctic expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott arrived at the South Pole, they were greeted by a flapping Norwegian flag firmly planted in the snow. Mount Everest, which some had dubbed the Third Pole, offered a last hope for British vindication after the Great War. The final obstacle, the permit to approach the mountain through Tibet, was granted by the Dalai Lama in December of 1920. The news broke in British newspapers shortly thereafter. France's young husband, the president of the Royal Geographical Society, who had led a disastrous military incursion into Tibet in 1904, believed that for the Everest expedition to be successful, it needed to capture the imagination of the British public. During an address to the membership of the RGS, he said that he wanted to get the idea of ascending Mount Everest enshrined in the very heart of society. Our forefathers were terrified of mountains, he said and called the most ordinary peak inaccessible. Nowadays, we refuse to admit that the highest mountain in the world cannot be scaled, and the man who first stands on the summit of Mount Everest will have raised the spirit of countless others for generations to come. Indeed, with the help of British newspapers, the first Mount Everest expedition soon grew into a popular crusade. By the spring of 1921, The Mount Everest Committee had organized an exploratory expedition to reconnoiter a route up the mountain. No westerner had been within 40 miles of the peak, and no one had the foggiest idea how to get to the base, let alone climb it. They did know that a labyrinthine maze of almost unimaginably huge glaciers guarded access to its slopes. Even if they could find a way through them, techniques of high-altitude mountaineering were in their infancy, Climbers of that era used thin ropes made of hemp and other natural fibers, more similar to clothesline than modern climbing rope. These cords were easily severed and generally used as a token last-ditch safety measure. The way a guardrail might, or might not, prevent a bus from plummeting down an embankment. Climbers and mountaineers made a point to never actually put their ropes to the test. Crampons, metal spikes used for traction on snow and ice, were practically unworkable because the straps that were used to fasten them to the leather boots restricted circulation to toes. The all-essential carabiner, a kind of snap shackle used in almost every imaginable climbing situation, had only recently been invented and had not yet come into widespread use. No one knew if it was even possible for a human to survive at 29,000 feet, and indeed many physiologists of the day were adamant that it was not. The precedent set in 1875 by three French scientists who took off in a hot air balloon hoping to set a new altitude record was not encouraging. When the balloon landed in a field, several hours after takeoff, the instrument showed that it had reached an altitude of 28,000 feet. But two of the three men were dead with their faces blackened and mouths filled with blood. The third, who somehow survived, had gone deaf. Today, it is obvious that the French scientists died because they had utterly failed to acclimate to the altitude, a process that can take weeks. At the time, there was very little awareness of this physiological reality. Despite these unknowns, George Mallory and his teammates on the first British Mount Everest expedition in 1921 made significant advances. Overcoming many obstacles, he and his climbing partner Guy Bullock reached a high point of 23,000 feet on a glacial call separating the north ridge of Everest from an adjacent 7,000-meter peak called Changsi. The men turned back 6,000 feet below the summit, but they had discovered a feasible route. A year later, Mallory was back. Using supplemental oxygen sets for the first time in mountaineering history, two of his teammates set a new altitude record of 27,300 feet. But on the team's final bid for the summit, The climbers were caught in an avalanche, resulting in the deaths of seven local porters who had supported the expedition. Many held Mallory, who had led this final assault, responsible for the tragedy. But when he returned home, the Mount Everest Committee nonetheless shipped him off to the United States on a lecture tour. And it was on this visit, when a reporter from the New York Times asked Mallory why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, that he quipped, Because it's there. From hard experience in 1921 and 1922, the Mount Everest Committee had concluded that packing its teams with veteran mountaineers who had held high-ranking commands during the Great War, men now in their 40s and 50s, was not working. These men may have had decades of Alpine experience and more than proven their valor in battle, but they were simply too old to climb at elevations above 25,000 feet. In 21 and 22, Mallory had been considered the young gun, chosen primarily for his technical climbing talent as well as the fact that he had distinguished himself as a lieutenant in the Royal Garrison Artillery during the Great War. Now the committee decided that Mallory was almost too old himself at age 37 and that they should find him a younger partner. The committee settled on a tow-headed 21-year-old rower and chemistry student from Oxford University Andrew Sandy Irvin was a precocious engineer and outstanding athlete. He impressed the committee with his evident pluck, even if he had almost no mountaineering experience and had never been higher than 5,500 feet above sea level. So what exactly happened to Mallory and Irvin on June 8, 1924? Was it possible that they were the first people to stand on top of the world? 75 years after the third British expedition ended in tragedy, an international team led by Eric Simonson, a veteran climber and guide from Seattle, who had summited Everest via the Northeast Ridge in 1991, set out for Tibet to find the answer. The team included several strong American mountaineers, as well as a German mountaineering historian named Jochen Hemleb. The expedition had come about through a collaborative effort among Hemleb, Simonson, a publishing executive named Larry Johnston, and a Briton named Graham Hoyland, a journalist for the BBC who was the great nephew of 1924 expedition member Howard Somerville. A deal was struck in which the expedition would be filmed by both the BBC and NOVA, the PBS science-based documentary television series. Tom Pollard was hired by NOVA as one of the expedition cameramen, The 1999 Mallory and Irvin Research Expedition focused on finding the camera that Mallory and Irvin carried as they disappeared into the clouds, the same object that would become the source of my own obsession nearly 20 years later. On June 5, 1924, Howard Somervell reported loaning his Vest Pocket Kodak, VPK, to George Mallory in Camp 4 on the North Call. Somerville had just returned from his own historic summit attempt, during which his partner Edward Norton, the expedition leader, had reached 28,126 feet, 8,572 meters, without the use of supplemental oxygen. The notoriously absent-minded Mallory, who was staging for his own final bid with Sandy Irvin, had forgotten his camera in one of the lower camps. Before departing for China, Simonson had contacted experts to see if it might be possible to develop film from the camera. Technicians at Eastman Kodak told him that if the VPK body was intact, the film, which would have been deep frozen for decades, might still be salvageable. They recommended carrying desiccant, a foil bag, and a cooler of dry ice for transporting the film home. Their hope was to find the camera and develop the film. If it showed Mallory or Irvin standing triumphantly on the summit, the history of the world's tallest mountain would have to be rewritten. The team historian Jochen Hemleb, though only 27 years old, was one of the world's leading authorities on the Mallory and Irvin mystery. By piecing together all the various clues, he had narrowed the search zone to an area the size of 10 football fields, about 13 acres, near the top of the North Face. One of the most important pieces of evidence was the eyewitness account of a Chinese climber named Wang Hung Bao, who had reported finding the body of an old English-English dead at 26,576 feet when he had wandered off the Northeast Ridge route in 1975 in search of a missing teammate. At the time, no other bodies were known to be that high on the north side of the mountain, so the corpse Hung Bao had seen could only be one of the lost British climbers. By examining aerial photographs and maps of the mountain, Hemleb had determined that the approximate location where Hungbao had seen this body was almost directly in the fall line from where an ice axe, believed to be Sandy Irvins, had been found in 1933 on the Northeast Ridge. The British made several more unsuccessful attempts to climb the mountain in the 1930s, and during the first of this second round of expeditions, climber Percy Wynne-Harris found the axe at 28,000 feet on a slab of rock 60 feet below the crest of the ridge. The 1933 team assumed that this location marked the scene of a fatal accident. In his book, Everest, 1933, the leader of the expedition, Hugh Rutledge, speculated that the axe was either accidentally dropped when a slip occurred or that its owner put it down possibly in order to have both hands free to hold the rope. He went on to explain that the slabs below the axe's location are not steep, but the rock is smooth and much of it is covered in loose pebbles. If a slip happened, it could easily have proved catastrophic. If Rutledge's theory is correct and Mallory and Irvin were roped together at the time, it's possible that one of them fell from this location and pulled the other off with him. But even more important to Hemle was fixing the location of the Chinese Camp 6 from which Hung Bao had wandered in 1975 in search of his missing teammate. By orienting the search team relative to this camp, Hemle believed he could put the searchers in Hung Bao's footsteps. Everything pointed to a snow terrace on the lower end of the yellow band, a distinctive layer of yellowish brown limestone that encircles the mountain like a golden ring between 26,000 and 28,000 feet. One of the searchers was the American alpinist, Conrad Anker. On the first day of searching, May 1, 1999, Anker looked up toward the skyline of the northeast ridge, more than 1,000 feet above him, to the approximate area where Irvin's ice axe had been found. If a body fell from up there, where would it end up? It appeared to Anker that there was a natural catchment basin to his west, in the direction of a deep snow gully known as the Norton Couloir, he soon found a badly mangled body in a purple down suit, but it was immediately obvious from the clothing and modern clip on crampons that it wasn't Mallory or Irvin. Soon thereafter, Anchor found another body. This one also contemporary and similarly crumpled, with its head hanging downhill. When Anchor leaned in close to see the face, he found himself staring into the empty eye sockets of a skeleton. Birds had eaten away all the flesh. Anchor continued searching the basin. A few minutes later, he felt something strange, sort of like deja vu. He'd later tell me that it was probably just the delay between what he saw in the periphery of his vision and when his oxygen-starved brain processed the information. But he said he definitely experienced a moment when he sensed the body before consciously seeing it. Over to his right, about 40 feet away, was something the color of alabaster, a light-absorbing white like mat rather than gloss at the paint store. When he was ten feet away, he realized he was looking at the bare backside of a long-deceased man. One glance at the body and he knew that this was no modern climber. The clothing, most of which had disintegrated, was obviously very old. But the leather hobnail boot told Anchor this was a climber from the earliest British Everest expeditions. This is it, he said to himself. This is Sandy Irvin. Jake Norton, a 25-year-old mountain guide from Massachusetts, was the first to arrive. When he was about 20 feet away, he stopped to take a photo of Anchor standing over the body. There seemed to be no doubt that the body lying before them was the same one that Hung Bao had discovered in 1975. And since it lay below the location where the ice axe was found in 1933, it was presumed to be Irvin. The man's hair was bleach blonde, and this gave them more certainty. Irvin had been nicknamed Sandy because of his light-colored hair. Norton was so convinced that he sat down and began picking out a tombstone on a chunk of shale that read, Sandy Irvin, 1902-1924. When Andy Pulitz and the other searchers, Tap ridgers and Dave Hahn, finally arrived, they were initially speechless. Everyone had been hopeful of finding something, on account of the strength of Hemlub's research, and the fact that the mountain had less snow that year than anyone had ever seen on the north side. But still, they all knew that the odds of a successful outcome were long. And yet here they were less than 90 minutes into the search. The first clue as to what might have happened was the 15-foot length of flax rope tangled around the body. Norton noticed bruising and rope-imprinted indentations on the left side of the torso. Closer inspection revealed broken ribs. Most of the clothing was shredded by decades of exposure to ultraviolet rays, but the collar of the shirt was still intact. Curious about what brand it might be, Norton turned out the collar and discovered a laundry label that read, G. Mallory. Wait, he said, this is George Mallory. To which Dave Hahn replied breathlessly, Really? Oh my God, oh my God. It was fortuitous that Mallory was lying face down. Technicians at Eastman Kodak had speculated that the best-case scenario for viability of the film would be if the body had shielded the camera from cosmic rays. The problem was that over the ensuing decades, the corpse had practically become one with the slope. Richards and Norton began chipping away at the rock-hard matrix of ice and gravel around the perimeter of the body, while anchor pulled upward from the legs. The frozen stiff corpse finally creaked and broke free from the slope. Dust wafted around the team as more of the natural fiber clothing disintegrated. While anchor held the lower half of the body in the air, Richards and Norton reached under the torso and began checking the various pockets. Unlike the backside where most of the garments had been stripped away, the chest was still fully clothed. Mallory and Irvin had set off for the summit that day wearing four layers on their legs and six on their upper bodies. Silk underwear, wool pants with patees, a wool sweater, and, as outerwear, a gabardine coat. Norton was rifling through the pockets when his hand closed around something square and hard in a small pouch hanging from the neck. I think I found something, he said. A jolt of electricity went through the group. Could this be the VPK? The pouch didn't want to come loose, so Norton cut it open with his knife. A second later, he held the item in his hand for everyone to see. Alas, it was not the camera, but a tin of savory meat lozenges, the 1920s version of an energy bar. Richards and Norton continued sifting through the pockets, bringing forth a trove of artifacts. After an hour or so, Norton pulled out a handkerchief from an inside chest pocket. Decorated with a floral burgundy blue and purple pattern, the initials GLM were embroidered on its edge in blue thread. Wrapped inside it were three letters all addressed to George Mallory. One of them was from Mallory's wife, Ruth, and another from his brother, Trafford. The third was from a woman named Stella Cobden-Sanderson. This was undeniably Mallory's body, not Irvin's. Norton pulled forth an altimeter, checking to see if it might miraculously have stopped recording at 29,000 feet. But it was smashed and missing its front glass and needle. The other items included a sewing kit, a bone-handled jackknife, a box of still operational swan vestas, the smoker's match, a tube of zinc oxide, a small pair of scissors, and the stub of a pencil, which Mallory had used to make notes on the back of one of the envelopes about the oxygen levels in each of their cylinders. The most interesting item was a pair of goggles with dented aluminum frames, wire mesh side shields, and wine bottle green lenses. Pulitz recognized that this was an important clue. The fact that Mallory was carrying these in his pocket suggested that the fall probably took place late in the day, perhaps even at night. Another clue as to what might have happened on June 8, 1924 was what the search team didn't find. According to Mallory's family, he carried a photograph of Ruth with him on the mountain, and he had made it known that if he managed to stand on top of the world, he would leave her picture on top. Was it possible that the reason they didn't find it wrapped in that floral-patterned handkerchief was because Mallory had indeed left it on the summit earlier that day? There was also no sign of the camera. Howard Somerville had reported handing the VPK to Mallory. But there is a rationale that it may have ended up with Irvin. He was the better photographer and would be more likely to be the one taking the summit photo rather than posing for it. So where was Sandy Irvin? The severed rope still knotted to Mallory's waist suggested that he had been tied to his young partner when he came to grief. And the injury to his torso seemed a sure sign that at some point, Mallory had come up hard on that rope. Perhaps Irvin had let go of his ice axe while trying to arrest Mallory's fall and then the rope had parted as the pair tumbled a thousand vertical feet down through the yellow band. But if that was the case, Mallory's body should have been more badly damaged like the other bodies the team had found on the snow terrace. In all likelihood, repeated impacts from such a fall would have killed him before he came to rest at this spot. The arrangement of his body and limbs, head uphill, arms outstretched above his head with fingers clawed into the slope, one leg crossed over the injured other, suggested that he was conscious and desperately trying to save himself when he reached this spot. The team could only conclude that the answer to how these two men met their demise wasn't as simple as a single fall from the Ice axe location. When Anchor found Mallory's body, Tom Pollard was on his way down to Advanced Base Camp, ABC. Earlier that morning, he had filmed his teammates as they set off from Camp 2 at 25,200 feet in the early morning Alpenglow. It was only after stowing his camera that he had noticed a problem with his oxygen apparatus. He had yelled to Jake Norton, who was about 300 feet above him, But Norton never heard him above the wind, and Tom didn't have a radio. So Tom reluctantly headed down the mountain, not up with the rest of the team. After the discovery, the search team had gone quiet on the radio. They knew that other teams were monitoring their transmissions, so a decision was made to cease all communication. So Tom and Simonson didn't know exactly what had transpired, only that it was something big. Han's last words over the radio before signing off had been, Thanks, Jochen. You're going to be a happy man. When Anchor and the others later strolled into camp, Simonson looked at them expectantly. But no one said anything because there were strangers nearby. After zipping themselves into the dining tent, Han, Norton, and Pullitz began pulling artifacts out of their packs. The first one they handed to Simonson was an old faded envelope. It was addressed to Mr. George Lee Mallory in fancy cursive handwriting. Simonson's face lit up with a huge smile. The next morning, the whole team was relaxing in the dining tent. It was a warm sunny day, so the door was tied back. Tom sat near the opening, gazing out at the trail that ran straight through their camp. A man walking by looked into the tent and called out to them. Hey, congratulations. What are you talking about? Asked Tom. The discovery? You guys found Mallory. How do you know about that? I was listening to the BBC and there was an interview with Ed Hillary congratulating you guys. Unbeknownst to Tom, Simonson and Dave Hahn had posted a dispatch the night before, announcing the discovery on a website called Mountain Zone that specialized in real-time coverage of Everest and other high-altitude expeditions. The post included a digital image of Mallory's corpse lying face down in the gravel. Hahn had divided the image into a dozen pieces to get it small enough to be transmitted through the modem on their satellite phone. Simonson says he hadn't wanted to announce the discovery so soon, but a producer for Nova named Lisa Clark, who was in base camp, had posted her own dispatch on the Nova website and had quoted Hahn telling Jochen, you're going to be a happy man. Word was already spreading fast, and since Mountain Zone was supposed to have the exclusive on any breaking news from the expedition, Simonson felt he had no choice but to go public. Within minutes of the dispatch going live, Mountain Zone's site logged a million hits per hour. George Mallory's body became front page news around the world. The fact that the men who had found Mallory were still on the mountain and planning to head back out to search for Irvin and the camera added the element of real time suspense and drama of the story, turning it into a global sensation. So far, the only photograph of Mallory that had been published was the tiny 100-kilobyte file that Han had spent an entire night uploading. Han, who had been submitting dispatches and photos throughout the expedition, was shooting with a digital camera, but most of the others were using 35mm film. Back in base camp, Simonson had collected everyone's film as agreed upon before the expedition so it could be carried back to the U.S. by a trekker and submitted to a stock agency that would control the distribution of the images to the media. Within 24 hours of the first dispatch, a bidding war had erupted among several publications, including Time, Newsweek, Life, National Geographic, and various British tabloids and newspapers. Life and National Geographic had even offered a six-figure payment in advance for the photos from the Kodak VPK, which hadn't even been found yet. Tom says that the numbers were discussed and that he was told his share would be $10,000, possibly more. People were scrabbling for whatever money they could get, says Tom. I'm not proud of the fact that I was one of them. On the surface, everyone was being civil, but according to Tom, the team was breaking into factions and there was a war brewing underneath about who would control the story and the windfall now in the offing. On May 8th, Hans' low-res digital photo of Mallory was published in The Sun a British tabloid owned by Rupert Murdoch. Anchor, for one, was appalled. He had advocated strongly for the photo to be sold to National Geographic magazine since he believed the editors there would handle its publication tastefully. Apparently, they had been outbid. Meanwhile, Simonson had been emailing with Mallory's grandson, George Mallory II, who lived in Australia. Before the expedition, Simonson had asked the family for permission to obtain a DNA sample if his team happened to find the body. Anchor had used his knife to cut a small piece of flesh from Mallory's arm. When George Mallory II heard that his grandfather had been found, he initially sent an email to the team expressing his heartfelt thanks. But that was before he had seen the photo in the sun. According to Tom, on May 8th, Mallory sent another email, this time conveying his deep disappointment that the effort to find his grandfather might have been motivated by money. In an interview that same day with the Observer, he said, Frankly, it makes me bloody angry. As word spread that the team had sold the photo to the highest bidder, the backlash was swift and furious. Sir Chris Bonington, who led the British expedition that made the first ascent of Everest's southwest face in 1975, told the Observer, Words cannot express how disgusted I am. These people don't deserve to be called climbers. Tom took some time to himself that night to record these events and his thoughts about them in his journal. The drama of the expedition, as if it couldn't heighten anymore, appears to be taking off into orbit. Two weeks after the discovery, the entire team was back on the mountain amidst a swirl of controversy. The original plan had been to search for Irvin and the camera on this second rotation. But a storm on May 8th had blanketed the mountain with snow the team decided that in the mountain's current condition, searching further for Irvin would be futile. That same storm had caught three Ukrainian climbers on their descent after they had summited without supplemental oxygen. One of the men had disappeared. His partners thought that he had broken through a cornice and fallen down the remote and seldom-climbed Kongshung face on the east side of the mountain. The other two, suffering from frostbite and high-altitude cerebral edema, spent a night in the open above 27,000 feet. In the morning, they were barely able to move. Most of the other expeditions mobilized for the ensuing rescue, including several members of Simonson's team. Anchor and Han helped lower the Ukrainians down from the North call in makeshift litters. They eventually made it down safely. Anchor and Han's efforts, in addition to those of many other climbers on the mountain, most certainly saved their lives. When the surviving Ukrainian climbers finally reached a hospital, their frostbitten fingers and toes were amputated. Their lost companion was never seen again. The effort had cost Simonson's team time and energy, commodities that are always in limited supply on Mount Everest. He decided to split the team into two parties, making the most of what was left. Anchor, Hahn, Norton, and Richards would go for the summit searching for any signs that Mallory and Irvin might have reached the upper section of the Northeast Ridge. Along the way, Anchor would try to free climb a notorious feature known as the second step to ascertain whether Mallory could have done it with his rudimentary equipment, a subject that had been fiercely debated for decades. The Northeast Ridge has three distinct rock crags, known as the first, second, and third steps. Of the three, the second step is by far the most difficult, it has long been held that if Mallory and Irvin could have surmounted it, as Odell originally reported they had, there would have been no further technical difficulties to stop them from summiting. In 1975, the Chinese installed an aluminum ladder on the second step, and ever since climbers have used it to clamber past the most difficult section of this vertical cliff, Anchor planned to forego the ladder and climb the rock itself, as Mallory and Irvin would have done. A second party, which included Tom, would return to the site of Mallory's final resting place to search the body again. In the days since the discovery, the team had decided that the first searchers hadn't completely exhausted the possibility of finding the camera. By bringing along a metal detector, they now hoped to conduct a more thorough search of the area. On May 16th, both teams arrived at Camp 3 at 27,200 feet. While Anchor and the others set up camp, Tom and Pulitz, set off to find Mallory. They traversed west, descending as they maneuvered across a 35-degree slope interspersed with sections of firm snow and loose plates of stone that skittered out from under their crampons. They climbed unroped, fully aware that if either of them slipped or stumbled, the next stop would be in a gaping crevice at the base of North Face, 6,000 feet below. Tom caught up with Pullitz after the pair had descended about 500 feet. Pullitz was standing on a rubble-covered ledge, looking confused. I can't find him, he said. Let's split up and meet at that rock. If we haven't found him by then, we'll bail and come back tomorrow. Half an hour later, Tom saw Pullitz staring intently at the ground. Moving closer, he noticed a mound of rock with a bone-white lower leg sticking out of it. Not knowing whether anyone would be coming back, the first search team had attempted to pay its respects to the legendary climber by piling rocks on top of the body. Up until that moment, Tom had thought of the expedition as simply a gig and Mallory as a historical figure. But now, as he and Pulitz uncovered the man's remains, Tom saw Mallory as a fellow climber, and he was struck by a feeling of kinship. The original party had done the heavy work of digging the body out of the frozen slope, so it took only a few minutes for them to dismantle the makeshift grave and lift Mallory's body into the air. As it came loose from the gravel, Tom had to cover his mouth to avoid breathing in dust from Mallory's pulverized clothing. They lifted Mallory by the legs. As rigid as a plank of wood, the corpse hinged off the arms, which meant the entire front of the body, including the face, was free of the slope. Tom slid his fingers into Mallory's pants pocket and immediately found a round-faced watch with a thin leather band, an important artifact that had been overlooked by Jake Norton and Tap Richards. The crystal and minute hand were missing, but Tom noted that the hour hand, which would fall off later when they were carrying it off the mountain, was pointing between one and two. Tom dug around in the pocket to see if there was any broken glass, but he found nothing, suggesting the crystal had broken somewhere along the climb. This meant that Mallory must have been doing okay at the time, as he would have had to remove his heavy woolen mittens to take off the watch and place it in his pocket. Tom thought about the crux of the second step, which he knew to be a six-inch-wide crack running vertically up the cliff. If Mallory had climbed it, he surmised, he would likely have jammed his left arm into that crack. Noel O'Dell had reported seeing Mallory surmounting this feature at 12.50 p.m., so the timing matched up more or less. Was this how the watch crystal had broken? After going through all the pockets and finding nothing else, Tom decided that he wanted to look at Mallory's face, which the first team had chosen not to do. Maybe he would see something that couldn't be detected by feel. Maybe this was Irvin, who for some reason was wearing his partner's clothing. Pulitz was getting tired from holding the corpse so Tom used his ice axe like a brace to prop the body in the air. He then got on his back and shinned underneath head first like a car mechanic slipping under the vehicle. Sharp rocks dug into his back. He worried he was tearing his down suit. Tom initially got so close to Mallory's face that he actually had to back off a bit to bring it into focus. The nose was slightly flattened from decades of being pressed into frozen gravel but otherwise, the impossibly handsome face that Mallory's friend Lytton Strachey once described as the mystery of Botticelli, the refinement and delicacy of a Chinese print, the youth and piquancy of an unimaginable English boy, was perfectly preserved. His eyes were closed, his chin was covered in black stubble which Tom touched with the tip of his finger, noting that it felt like three or four days' worth of growth. There was no sign of frostbite in any of the telltale spots. The tip of the nose, cheeks, earlobes. But above his right eye, Tom insists that he saw a horrific wound, a hole about the size of a half dollar that went right through the skull, with jagged edges rimmed with bits of bone and blood. I actually felt a sense of relief when I saw it, says Tom because it was clearly a mortal wound. Whatever had caused it, Mallory could not have lived long afterwards. Tom considered taking a photo of Mallory's face, but after the photo that had been published in the Sun and all the outrage that had rained down on the team as a result, he balked. He would later regret his decision not to document the wound he saw in Mallory's head. Politz never saw it. He was searching the surrounding area to no avail with the metal detector at the time and eyewitness accounts at high altitude are notoriously unreliable. When they were back at their tent that night and Tom brought it up, Pollitz didn't remember any mention of the wound while they were examining the body. Tom remains adamant that the wound was real and not a figment of his imagination, or a play of shadows on his altitude-addled eyes. And he did record it in his journal shortly afterward. Most Everest historians have accepted his account. But the fact is that he and Pulitz did not flip the body over, so they never got a clear view of Mallory's face. And the existence of a gaping hole in the head potentially conflicts with the conclusions of others, including my own, that Mallory must have been conscious and still struggling to save himself before he succumbed. When they had finished searching the body, Tom and Pulitz covered it with rocks as well as they could. As they hiked down the mountain toward Camp 2, Tom stopped and looked back at the gravesite, now about 75 feet above him. It wasn't a proper burial as there simply weren't enough stones in the vicinity to fully bury the body. This fact bothered Tom more than anything else. Tom called me a few days after his lecture to get a critique, and it was during this conversation that he filled in a lot of details he had left out that night in Maine. That image of his legs sticking in the air still haunts me to this day he said. I've always felt that if I ever went back to the north side of Everest, I would finish the job. Are you thinking about going back someday? I asked. Tom had already been to Everest three times. I assumed now that he had finally made this summit, he would retire from high-altitude mountaineering. After all, he was 56 years old. Why would he want to go back again? I thought you knew, Tom said. I've been trying for years to get funding for another expedition to look for Sandy Irvin and the camera. And I've always wanted to summit from the north. I was aware that subsequent teams had gone looking for Irvin on several occasions in the years since Mallory had been found. Most of the 1999 team, except Tom and Anchor, had taken part in a second search expedition in 2001. They had found Mallory and Irvin's final camp at 26,700 feet on a north ridge, where a few more artifacts were unearthed. A sock with the name Norton on it, a piece of rubber tubing, and two leather straps with buckles, but nothing that gave them any more clues about what happened the day Mallory and Irvin disappeared. Norton and Hahn had tried again in 2004, and that same season another team, led by the veteran Sherpa cheering Dorchi, was also looking around in the yellow band. Most recently, Hemleb led two more Irvin search expeditions in 2010 and 2011. Despite all this effort and resources, not a trace of Irvin had been found. I was skeptical. You don't think you could actually find him, do you? What if I had a critical piece of information that no one else has had? Tom replied. Like what? He paused for a few seconds. Like the exact location of the body?